Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Isaac Bogach. He's a professor in medicine at U of T and an infectious diseases specialist, including a focus on tropical diseases and HIV, and he became very public-facing in his work and regular commentary through the COVID pandemic. I've certainly always found him to bring a level of common sense and thoughtfulness to the conversation, and this conversation touches on that public-facing role that he played, but we're mostly focused on the broader conversation of global health equity, how we can better act to prevent and treat neglected tropical diseases, and how to make the most of pandemic prevention and preparedness efforts. Isaac, thanks for joining me. No problem. I just heard recording in progress, so I'll stop swearing right now. <laughs> That's probably a good idea. You can swear. I've sworn on this podcast before, I think. Oh, I'm uh, not doing that. <laughs> this is not your typical media appearance. Uh, I, I want to ask you about media appearances as a as a doctor, but but maybe for those who don't know you, walk me through how you came to care about and be involved in infectious diseases. Oh, okay, so uh, I'm an infectious diseases physician. I'm based out of the Toronto General Hospital, and you know my entire career has really been focused on, for starters, the clinical treatment of people with various infectious diseases, and and really a focus on tropical related infections and and HIV and HIV prevention. That's sort of the focus, but all infectious diseases, um, you know, I, I've got a significant clinical interest in and, and that's what the pra- my practice is on. And then from a sort of a research and policy uh, standpoint, really focusing on uh, both, well, the technical term is emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases, um, things like COVID-19, Ebola, uh, SARS-1, um, other infections that people might not have heard of, like we had uh, chikungunya outbreaks, Zika outbreaks, and then uh, also focusing on um, tropical infectious diseases as well, sometimes known as uh, neglected tropical diseases. So I've got a, a big research interest on on those two areas. And I want to get to neglected tropical diseases, and there's also a big conversation to have around pandemic prevention preparedness more generally that I'm interested in. But as a starting point, on a personal note, I, I don't have that many Twitter followers, all things considered, but I've been in public life and I, you know, I I'm I, I welcome the the feedback and occasional abuse as a public official and wish there wish there was a little bit less of it, but but that's but the, I I'm a public facing person and I've chosen that. You are a doctor and by happenstance, really, in the course of commenting on COVID-19, you have an incredible following on social media. You are a regular commentator in the media and have been throughout the pandemic and become a trusted voice in many ways. And, and was that a surprise to you? Did you ever imagine that that you would take on a role like that? I mean, it's, it's interesting. I would never have sort of foreshadowed something like this. It actually started way earlier. I mean, I did a lot of work um related to the 2014 Ebola virus epidemic in West Africa. And we, uh, the group I work with did some modeling and projections in terms of how this would spread. Uh, and that's um, got some media attention. And uh, I think people in the media had my name perhaps related to that. And then later on, there was people might remember there was a massive Zika virus outbreak in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. And again, me and the team I work with were very early in demonstrating how this was going to get to Latin America and the Caribbean, how this was going to spread through Latin America and the Caribbean, and that uh, and that also um, was highlighted in the media pretty significantly. Um, COVID nineteen 
I'm not gonna not gonna pat myself on the back, but maybe I will for a second. You know, me and and the team I work with, we were the first group to. I think we have the very first peer peer reviewed article on COVID nineteen, uh, and that was published online in a peer reviewed journal, Journal of Travel Medicine, on January fourteenth, twenty twenty. Like the second we heard about this outbreak of uh, a fever of unknown origin uh, emerging from Wuhan, China, heard about it December 31st, 2019. I was on the phone January 1st, 2020 with uh, some friends and colleagues. We were asking ourselves, you know, is this it? Like, is this is this the big one? Is this the real deal? Uh, and we started working on it immediately. And we started looking at, for example, travel patterns from Wuhan uh, to different different parts of the world in terms of uh, passenger volumes and destinations, and we said, you know what, this this is this is probably going to be something big, um, and uh, we we worked on it right away. And I remember my wife was rather annoyed with me. We were actually on vacation in New York City, January first, and I spent half the time on the phone with friends and colleagues talking about this virus of unknown etiology or the syndrome, and uh, and we ended up uh, getting it, uh, sending it to a journal rather early, and uh, you know they had some comments and changes but we we they ended up publishing our our article on on january uh 14th we came up with another one on january 20th and again that that got uh some media attention as well and i think things snowballed from there right like at the end of the day obviously when you're thinking about a, a pandemic there's lots of experts there's lots of people this is a this really is a team issue um one of the things i work on is that that uh that interface between clinical infectious diseases, epidemiology, public health, and policy, and really all of those came to the to to really the front and center for many people in, in the Canadian public. So it just happened to be an area I I know a little bit about. And, uh, yeah, but not just knowing a little bit about because you mentioned public health. A big part of public health is communicating risk, benefits, cost benefit. And real practical decision making is it's not this isn't a lab. This is real human behavior. And yep. how do we make sure that people are managing their risks in, in an appropriate way, knowing that we're not going to reduce the risk to zero? We have to we have to manage the risks. And when it comes to border control and, and border closures or reopening, when it comes to masks, do they work? When do they work? What kind of masks when it comes to vaccines? Do they prevent transmission mandates and the difficult conversations there? Bubbles of being together early on, you know, the, the very difficult conversations of COVID shaming of, oh, you saw this family member or not that family member, yeah. outdoor oh, versus God. indoor. I mean, there were so many different approaches, different articulations of what the right answer was. And certainly some people more judgmental than others. You always struck me, and I think others, as bringing a, a strong degree of balance to and 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 considered judgment to your communication. That you, you weren't suggesting you knew all the right answers, but putting people in 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 the best position they could be to make that public health decision for themselves. Yeah, I mean that's it. I think you, that you hit the nail on the head. That's that's the key the key point there is helping inform the general public, appreciating that there's certainly. Um, I'm, there's appreciating the uncertainty of the situation, uh, but acknowledging what we do know, acknowledging that we're all coming from different places, uh, acknowledging that some people uh, are more risk averse than others, um, and then really drilling down on the science and staying true to the science in terms of what we actually know, but appreciating that that changes with time and making enabling people to make the best decision they possibly can for themselves at that moment in time, 
while telegraphing that what's true today might not be true tomorrow, and this is going to have to adjust with time. It's not easy to do. It's absolutely not easy to do. And at the end of the day, sometimes you have to be decisive and make a decision and say, you know what, this is the right approach. We should all be doing X right now, knowing that X might change to Y, you know, three months from now. Uh, but I think as long as you telegraph the uncertainty and telegraph that things are very likely going to change with time, but this is the right decision to make at the right time, then we're doing something we're, we're doing something right. Uh, that sounds a little bit vague, but I think there's, as you pointed out, about a thousand different examples we could have gone to. Yes, exactly. Mask in terms of vaccine approach, mask approach, border approach, you know, a gathering approaches and, and, and whatnot during the pandemic. And, you know, I think there's a ton of revisionist history going on right now, looking back and saying, oh, we didn't do enough or, oh, we did way too much. But, um, you know, when you're, you're, you're neck deep in it and it's, you've got to make a real decision right now, it's, it's obviously not, it's obviously not easy to do. And, you know, I don't, uh, oh, I don't envy the real decision makers. I mean, many people in, in political roles that had to really draft policy and make policy because sometimes there is no right path forward. There's better paths forward and, and, um, but there's always trade-offs. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think there's probably some value in looking at, say, the chief medical officer of health and 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 Dr. Moore for the time being and saying that position should probably be independent to make sure that there can be more critical decision making. And, and there, there isn't this worry from the public that, well, well, is Dr. Moore saying the things he wants to be saying or is he saying the things that he's being told to say from a political perspective? So I, I think there are probably some things that, that could have been sharpened in that context, whereas we were getting unvarnished opinions from yourself and from others, where I, I think then people you were able to build trust in a serious way and in a way that, you know, the, the Twitter doctor phenomenon is a real one. And you were on the front lines in many ways throughout the pandemic, commenting on these different approaches and, and giving your best advice. And I think built a lot of trust along the way because, because of that independence. Well, thank you. I, I, I truly appreciate it. And I think there's many others as well who have been you know, very sound voices of reason throughout, throughout the pandemic. And of course, in the same breath, I think there have been, um, Several who, you know, perhaps were uh, maybe a bit too cavalier and uh, didn't appreciate the risk at the at the time. That it was more significant than many might have appreciated. And I think there's also several that perhaps continue to overcall the uh, significance of certain you know phenomena and certain items. And uh, it's a fine line, really. Uh, and it's not a matter of being in the middle. That's not, that's not the goal. The, the, it's really assessing what the true risk is, assessing what the science shows, assessing that, w really evaluating what we truly know now. And again, we know a lot, uh, but also appreciating some uncertainty as well and uh, making the best judgment you possibly can. And appreciate human behavior. It, it, oh, I, yeah. I, think of, I think of it from, oh, a, yeah. a, from a drug policy perspective, which I've been very vocal on in, in, in federal politics. This idea that one can stamp out any and all substance use as oh. if this hasn't been tried throughout history. So yeah. you really are in a harm reduction conversation about 100%. what are the real risks, the actual risks, not some overstated, exaggerated risk, not understated risk. But what is the actual risk based on the science and what is human behavior show us throughout history and how do we manage the risks appropriately with, with different policy interventions? I um, think that's it. Wait, wait, wait. But just to drill down on that point, like that's why. I think where we really lost out was that we did not include 
specialists in human behavior or social scientists or anthropologists and other other specialists in human behavior as significantly as we should have in the pandemic response. And, and that doesn't mean let's take a poll and see what people want and do what people want. It means let's actually understand human behavior and integrate policy decisions that are, you know, science driven and science oriented and pragmatic. But let's also understand the general psychology of Canadians or of humans in general and frame this in a very reasonable approach. I think we could have done a much better job because sometimes we see things, we'd see things and see policies that were like, they just didn't align with science or they just didn't align with what everyone was doing. Like if you have a policy, however scientifically correct it might be, if you have 38 million Canadians that are just ignoring it, uh, then it's a stupid policy. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So mm -hmm. I, I think we used to, we mistakenly say, oh, this policy is just based on, I'm you hear the term, I'm following the science. Yeah, it's important to do. But I think it's also important to recognize that is but one of several pillars that should go into a sound policy. The other is, you know, we have a we have a elected government, <laughs> like we have a government with with a mandate. And um, like, we'd be foolish to think that politics doesn't play into some of these policies. Of course it does. Of course it does. Right or wrong, it absolutely does play into it. And then, of course, you know, what is the will? What do people want? Like these policies, whatever COVID policy we have, be it vaccine, be it borders, be it whatever, it should reflect the will of the people, right? It'd be great if it was science-based. But again, these policies are really meant to serve people. Uh, and yeah, and, 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 and to be effective, really I, I, I think that's yeah. the, the overwhelming goal has to be effectiveness. And if yeah. you don't appreciate human behavior along the way, your policies are not going to be effective in bringing 100%. people along. Um, 100%. Speaking of effective policies, I, I find it quite shocking when I read about neglected tropical diseases, which you might want to give a rundown of some examples. I mean, leprosy, rabies, scabies, dengue fever. I mean, there are there's a list of a number of them. I, there was a list of 20 of them, 20 of them uh, when I was checking out the Canadian Networks website. Uh, over one and a half billion people affected in over 140 countries. And obviously much of this is about, you know, adequate sanitation, adequate access to clean water, adequate access to some pretty basic healthcare services. But that question of effectiveness is pretty shocking when you look at it and you say, well, these can be prevented. We, we have... The science is there, the, the evidence is there, the, the tools and treatments are there, and actually they're very low-cost interventions in many cases that are required. Yeah. It, it's, it's shocking in some ways that we don't do more on the preventative side. Oh my God, I'm so happy we're having this conversation. So just for people that might not know about it, you'll hear this term NTD, it stands for Neglected Tropical Diseases. And just taking a step back, like why are we using a term called neglected tropical diseases. And really what, what this is, it's an umbrella term. It's a wide casting net that covers many viruses, bacteria, parasites, fungi, toxins. And, and when you, you know, each one of these diseases, each one of them, you know, kind of gets ignored. Uh, you know, not many people have heard of, uh, or at least in Canada, maybe people might not have heard of Chagas disease or onchocerciasis or schistosomiasis, right? They're long names. They affect people in faraway countries. They don't have a, a, an impact significantly here on most of us in Canada. 
Um, but when you bind these all together under the umbrella of neglected tropical diseases, you can, for lack of a better word, brand it and fund it and promote it and acknowledge that there are, like you said, over a billion and a half people on the planet that are impacted by them. They are awful diseases. They cause significant morbidity and mortality globally. And yeah, we're largely spared from them in Canada, but, um, Many people living in low-income countries and low-middle-income countries are continuously impacted by this. They impact the poorest of the poor. They shorten lifespan. They shorten people's lives, and they make people's lives miserable. As you point out as well, there are rather easy interventions and low-hanging fruit that we can you know, fund and help so that we can lessen the burden of these. And and yeah, you know, again, long names diseases that don't affect us here, but are very, very important. And again, it's, um, you know, I, I'm glad you brought this up. This is a topic near and dear to my heart. I know there's many people in Canada that work overseas, myself included, to help combat these. We work with local public health units and local doctors and local scientists uh, in countries that are impacted by these. But yeah, this is this is a big deal. And Canada certainly can be doing more to improve our commitment to there's something called the Kigali Declara- Declaration of 2022, where it's really a political declaration to mobilize resources to fund the, uh, you know, fund programs to help end neglected tropical diseases. Canada can certainly contribute more to this, and we absolutely should. I was lucky to have Dr. Paul Farmer on the podcast before he passed. Wow. And uh, yeah, in, really incredible man. And he, our conversation really focused on global health equity overall. And it, stood out to me, he said something along the lines of, you know, other countries obviously want the same things we do, and they don't want Canadians coming in and, and solving their problems and then leaving and then having to come back again and then leaving and coming back again and leaving. No, you want to build health capacity domestically. And sometimes it is about specific tools and treatments being made available at a low cost. And, you know, malaria nets, pretty preventative, obvious preventative measure. But, you know, there are other things like, I don't, I'm not going to pronounce this right at all, but female genital schistosomiasis schistosomiasis but, so yeah schistosomiasis. I, I, was, I was close i was close yeah FG, it was a huge issue fgs yeah I, I, it was like 50 plus million women yep. girls are affected by this it's a common infection largely undiagnosed and unrecognized there's a readily available safe and effective treatment it boggles the mind that more isn't done on on these various things but a huge part of this is also building local capacity and this is a in your experience part of this is about funding the treatment and tools presumably and part of this is about making sure we're helping to train people on the ground to do that kind of a diagnosis to make sure people are being recognized as having this disease in the first place so that they can be then treated 100 percent. i mean the key here is capacity building right capacity building capacity building capacity building right at, at the end of the day there are incredible scientists and doctors and public health specialists in the countries that are impacted by this there's no shortage of brains. Um, there's a shortage of resources. And we certainly can be part of the global community to help enable local scientists, local doctors, local public health specialists care for the communities that they serve. We don't need to parachute in and, uh, you know, be the uh, hero du jour and then and then run away uh, back to the safety of Canada. I mean, I think we can form long-term commitments to help with sustainable uh, goals and, 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 you know, help with 
infrastructure development, but the key here is capacity building and sustainability. Sustainability is key. Um, let's just remember, though, that you know it's not like many of the countries impacted by this don't know what these what these conditions are. They live with this every day. They know how to treat them. They know how to manage them. They know how to care for their populations. They just have limited resources to do so. We can help with resources. And at the end of the day, we should be really supporting local solutions to local problems. Um, and, and that's key. Uh, I think, you know, many of the partnerships we see today are, are really aligned with doing that. And, you know, one of those key things is building up local primary care, local public health capacity, local disease surveillance and detection programs, local uh, treatment, uh, screening and treatment programs. Um, and it, it's really important. You, you gave a beautiful example earlier, schistosomiasis. Many Canadians might not have heard that. So this is a parasitic worm disease. You get it by direct contact with fresh water, not drinking fresh water, direct contact with fresh water. 90% of the burden of this is in African settings. So imagine, you know, you go down to the river or the lake to get water, go fishing, kids playing, doing laundry, like your day-to-day -day activities, right? And, and you can catch this infection by literally just wading in the water and having direct contact with it. There are over 200 million people infected with this worldwide. There are, um, uh, again, 90% of the burden is in African settings. This can cause long-term morbidity, like severe uh, liver disease and uh, morbidity and mortality related to uh, liver disease. It can cause also uh, bladder and genitourinary genitor, disease. Uh, it can cause infertility in women. It can cause pelvic pain in women. Uh, it, it, there's a lot it can do. And it's a massive women's health issue, like a massive, massive women's health issue with the female uh, schistosomiasis issues. So how do you, you know, it's, Again, it's, it, there's multiple ways to control this infection at the level of the community. One of those ways is to detect it in the community. And you go into communities and, and public health programs basically just give people a tablet of an antiparasitic agent once a year. The, the tablet's That's called Prozoquan. That's it. Yeah, Prozoquan. And you, just, you, just, you don't even bother treating, uh, you don't even bother screening communities. If the burden in an area is so high, everyone stands on a scale, you get your Prozoquan and boom gone, disappeared, easy to treat, no problem whatsoever. And you just wow. knock down the community burden, uh, reduces morbidity, reduces issues with this. And it works. There's ample, it's, it's a cheap, effective tool. Um, but again, these programs are, uh, you know, they're, they're working well in some places, but there's massive potential for scale. And uh, it doesn't cost a lot to scale this. But again, you need the personnel, the healthcare personnel, the public health personnel, uh, community leadership, community buy-in, access to the medications. Um, but it's not, it's not expensive to do. It just requires a commitment. Now, a commitment to help people elsewhere is not always a commitment people here want to make. I wish we had more people here who want to make those kinds of commitments. I was knocking doors in a in the Hamilton by-election recently and knock on a door of someone who very apparently is not a fan of the federal liberal government, but, but it became further apparent that in one of his expressions of displeasure and disapproval was, uh, we're sending all of our money to countries I've never even heard of. And 
when you've got a situation in Ontario, for example, you mentioned access to primary care where one and a half to two million people don't have access to their own primary care here in Ontario. How do you answer someone who says, yeah, the WHO 2030 NTD roadmap is fine and health for all, the SDG three goal is fine, but we got to help people here first. I think we absolutely have to help people here, but I don't think it's a dichotomy. It's not, you have to do one or the other. We can do both and we can do both well. We definitely yeah, you, have. You got you to come knocking doors with me. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll cover way more ground. <laughs> oh man, am I avoiding politics like it? Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, I had a bit of my, too much of my fair share over the last few years. So I think I'm, I'm good on that front. But the, uh, <laughs> you know, I think obviously we can do both well. We 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 are we clearly have needs in Canada that are massive, right? We have an opioid crisis. We have a primary care crisis. We have, I mean, a woefully underfunded public health system at locally, uh, provincially, and federally. Like we have a lot of room for improvement on multiple areas, and I'm focusing on the health and public health front. Having said that. We also have to appreciate we are extremely privileged, right? We have one of the highest standards of living on the planet. We have tremendous excess. We are so lucky that we live in Canada. Um, we, we're, you know, and you only have to leave our borders for, you know, a minute in just about any other country of the planet to realize how lucky we truly are. We can give. And we should give and we should certainly help our friends and neighbors around the world who are less fortunate. Um, it's, it's not even that big a commitment, um, you know, but it's, well, that's that, that that right there. It's not even that big of a commitment. It, it, it's wild when you put it in in real terms. So after we finish chatting, I'm, I've got a meeting later today at a lovely little local coffee shop morning parade. And I'm going to go. I'm sure going to have a green tea there and I'm going to spend probably four dollars all in. And that's eight people who could be receiving treatment in a year when it comes to the prevention and treatment of NTDs. I, five, five of the most common NTDs can be prevented and treated at the cost of 50 cents per person per year. So that idea of we can't do both is, is, is a yeah. real fiction. Yeah. Of, of course we can. Of course we can, and we should, we should. It, it, I think it's our global responsibility as well. Uh, we, we absolutely can, we absolutely should. Um, you know, numbers are thrown around like $65 million over a five-year period of time, which is, you know, I think a very reasonable amount of money for focusing on NTDs and water and sanitation projects and HIV and tuberculosis projects. Like they, these are, these are modest amounts and they go a long, long way. Um, I think, you know, we can nitpick over what the exact dollars and cents values would be about support. But the question is, should we be supporting this? The answer is absolutely yes. And of course that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't mean we're ignoring our, our local issues at home, which are, which are significant. We obviously have a, uh, have to prioritize our, our well-being too, but uh, that doesn't come at the cost of really supporting the most in need around the planet. And do you think the pandemic experience we've all lived through will 
better inform these global health equity conversations around vaccine equity, for example. I was pushing in Parliament and others were pushing to say we need to expand global vaccine equity and we need to be a, a real player in this. And there were certain multilateral institutions that were stood up to deliver on this. In, a, in imperfectly, if we're, if we're fairly criticizing, but but better than we've had before, perhaps. And do you see this as something to build upon, or do you see governments pulling back and, and looking in a more insular way at fixing their own problems? I honestly don't know the answer to this, but here's I've two thoughts. Number one, I think right now we have probably the most health literate population we've ever had. Right over the last few years. You have conversations in the mainstream media and on social media and in general, you know, in general discourse about mRNA and PCR and antigen testing. Like, have you ever heard that ever before? Before, like, for example, before 2019, like the general public just wasn't talking about stuff like that. So, like, we have an extremely health literate population. So that's one point. The second point is that. For a period of time, especially in the spring of 2021, the other thing that dominated headlines was equity, right? We need to vaccinate essential workers. We need to vaccinate marginalized communities and low-income communities that are more dis- that are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. Like this really dominated headlines. And again, you just it makes its way into the news from time to time, but you know, you just don't see too much of this in general. So I thought there was some wonderful momentum on uh on on equity at that point. Having said that, I think things that are working against us right now are that we've lost a lot of momentum on those equity discussions publicly. I think we just have. Um, it's really unfortunate. I thought maybe naively that maybe some of those, uh, maybe some of that momentum would have continued. I, I just don't think it has. I think uh, we, we, we've certainly seen it lost steam and that's, that's a shame. And then we have, um, you know, from a, a uh, at least related to the community level science and health and public health knowledge. I think we also are combating tremendous misinformation and disinformation online. Um, and, uh, and I don't, I don't think that's helping much at all. So, you know, will we actually make these commitments? Will we have a less insular approach? I don't know. I, tr- I, I truly don't know. I think uh, it's, it's clearly important to continue to advocate for uh, health and equity um, and, uh, but, um, it might be, a, it might be an uphill battle at this point in time. It might've been easier a couple of years ago. I think that's probably the right read. Although I hope we can overcome some of those challenges, including by being pretty specific about end goals. I, I, I think the idea that there's a real practical elimination strategy with some of these NTDs. And yeah. so you had, you had retweeted at one point that the Carter Center, Jim, Jimmy Carter's legacy in this way, but helped to lead the global guinea worm eradication campaign. And this was shocking. In 1986, there were three and a half million cases in 21 countries. And last year, there were only 13 cases in five countries. We can truly win yeah. at eradication. And, and if we're very focused on outcomes and saying, this isn't just about equity in some in some vague sense, we are going to win and eradicate these these NTDs. Like those numbers are spectacular. Who would have thought Jimmy Carter would be the face of guinea worm? So for people that don't know, guinea worm is a horrible infection. It will probably be eradicated in our lifetimes. I'm 44, so hopefully in my lifetime. Uh, and this is that one, if people aren't aware about it, you, you get it by ingesting contaminated water. It's got a, the parasites in the water. It has a long incubation period, but over a year. But this is the one where 
uh, a very painful sore develops, usually on the foot, and then a long, thin worm that can be three, four feet long emerges, uh, and it has to be taken out slowly, but that it's a rather painful and incapacitating condition. And, you know, millions and millions of cases in, in dozens of countries earlier, and uh, through very smart public health interventions, it's now, you know, a handful of cases in a small handful of countries, and elimination is near. This is remarkable. Like, this is remarkable progress. It took commitment, goals, funding, uh, and a, a dedicated team, but like there are huge swaths of the planet that no longer have this. That's like it's incredible. And and of course, that's just but one of many other tropical infectious diseases where we can put a significant dent in. Some truly can be eradicated. Others, we can mitigate uh, illness and mitigate, mitigate suffering. Others are vaccine, likely vaccine preventable, and we can fund vaccines. Others, we can um, have better community uh, treatment and screening programs so, so we can at least decrease the burden of this at an individual and a community level. But there's there's a tremendous amount of work. And, you know, if we look back, there's also been a lot of progress as well. Like, you know, you think of things like lymphatic filariasis, that's also known as elephantiasis. Like there's been significant programs and a reduction, a reduction of the global burden of that illness. There's another one called river blindness. It used to be a very significant cause of, of blindness. It was an infection from a fly bite that ultimately impacted the skin and the eyes. And again, it's still around and it's still horrible, but it's just that the global burden is much less now than it was before. And that's just sustained pressure, sustained efforts over decades and decades. But again, you can't lose steam, especially with the pandemic disrupting so many public health programs globally and shifting resources to fighting COVID away from resources that are used to fight neglected tropical diseases, HIV, tuberculosis. We'll probably see a resurgence of, of, of some of these, at least in the coming year or two. And, and it just takes a, a significant commitment, not just to bring back those public health programs, but also add to them, continue to support those programs, continue to fund research to to really quash these nasty, nasty infections that are such a global scourge. Yeah. And, and the way you describe them, they're not only horrible on a, on a day-to-day for so many people, they also, when you describe the guinea worm, it sounds like an episode of the X-Files. It sounds just, oh, yeah. it sounds horrible. Uh, you know, what's weird. Totally. Like, I mean, this is just a hundred years ago. I mean, not really, but I think it was 2004, 2005. I was working in Northern Ghana at the time and they had almost finished the uh, eradication of guinea worm there. And I was, I was helping out with the local team and we saw like the last few cases of this, in um in the country of ghana and it was it was fascinating to see this like we were you know you sit in clinics and people uh come to the clinic and you know i'm working with local docs and local public health teams but like you know we're watching these worms come out of people's feet very slowly over a period of time it's really painful it's really uncomfortable uh the interesting thing too is you know what do you do if your foot is really red hot swollen sore and painful what you want to do is you want to go and put it in water. And if you put it in water, what happens is the worm, that's how it completes its life cycle. It lays the eggs in the water and then more people contaminates more water and then more people can get infected. So it truly is. The, the reason I bring this up is this isn't just throwing money at a problem. These are community issues and community problems. So there's, it takes community awareness, community engagement and support. So you, you have to support someone. You can't have a person with this infection go down to the local water source and contaminate the water. So they need funds. They need uh, a community help. 
so that they can get water, food, accommodation, uh, so they can care for themselves and, and be cared for until this infection has run its course and is healed, and so that they don't go contaminate the local water supply and then other people get infected as well. So there really is a, a major community focus on this as well. It's not just, here's a drug, here's the treatment, we're done. It's it, there, there really is a community focus here. And it makes sense. You talk about a, a comprehensive focus to protect others, not just at an individual yep. level, but at a population health level. You talk about the need to really focus on prevention and then to not lose steam. And when I think about the pandemic, there's, you think of SARS, let's start. And there's a review out of SARS and some measures are taken to the Public Health Agency of Canada, for example. Some, some measures are implemented. The funding stream that was ultimately delivered is not exactly how the SARS review was thinking through how to address that challenge, but some additional money went into the system and, and PHAC was stood up. Still, it was of a moment in time. And I can tell you from a political lens and, and that sense of losing steam, it, it lost steam. And we yeah. weren't talking about the public health agency of Canada and, and, and empowering the public health agency of Canada with respect to infectious diseases and a one health approach and prevention in the same way. And if anything, immediately before the pandemic, if one remembers the conversation about public health here in Ontario, it was the Ford government cutting public health because their version of public health was, well, these are unnecessary health inspectors in restaurants. <laughs> and that was public health. And we've come a long way, I think, since then, fairly. But I don't want us to lose steam. And I don't want us to wake up 20 years from now, 30 years from now, and have someone in my position say, oh, that happened so many years ago. And we should have learned lessons and we should have done more. And why didn't we do more? And so I've got a bill. It's now past second reading. It's going to go to the health committee in the coming weeks. And the idea is pretty straightforward. I copied it from the climate accountability framework, which is to say every three years, it could be every five years we might change it. I'm not sure. But it, every three to five years, the government has to table in parliament a pandemic prevention and preparedness plan. And that plan, you know, I set out a list of factors, probably missing some factors, probably over-inclusive in some ways from a jurisdictional perspective. I'm touching on primary health capacity, for example, which is really important, but is a provincial matter and not a federal matter. So there's some navigating of federal jurisdiction and provincial jurisdiction and, and the challenges of federalism in responding to some of these things. But at its core, it seems pretty straightforward that we should have that kind of impetus on and that that accountability obligation on the government so it doesn't fall off the table so we don't lose steam yeah we absolutely should listen there's going to be another pandemic we all know that that's a certainty there's very few certain things in life but that's a certainty we, we will have another pandemic the question is when will that pandemic be and what will the organism be but we will have one so we have to be prepared the other way to think about this too you know is like let's just look at what happened over the last three years we have over fifty-one thousand dead canadians directly as a result of covid we have a lot of people who have more chronic manifestations of the illness and then when you start measuring in dollars and cents the impact on this from an economic standpoint i'm not even going to i'm not even going to guess what that number is in canada i know it's got billions in it maybe more i i just don't but it's it's it, the the cost is it's a it's absurd so you know, from a healthcare standpoint, from an ethical standpoint, from a financial standpoint, from a picking every single sector we could think of standpoint, it makes sense to have a sound pandemic plan. And I think, you know, like we, we also can't be naive. If not, if when there is another pandemic, we're all going to get hit. We're all going to have bumps and bruises uh, on, on the planet. 
the goal is obviously to come out with as few as possible. It's not, but I, I think we still have to be realistic. It's not like you're going to stop something. Like once that, once there's truly a pandemic, it's gained steam. It's going to steamroll the world. The goal is obviously mitigate the impact, and I and we absolutely can. One of the mistakes is thinking that you know we're an island and we're going to do this on our own. Obviously not. We can we we have to prepare locally. We have to ensure that the 38 million Canadians are safe. We have to have smart relationships with uh, the federal, provincial, and, and municipal governments and the federal, provincial, and local public health units. Like we have to have those smart relationships. But you know, thinking that this is a local issue rather than a global issue is one of the biggest mistakes, right? We obviously we have to prepare, but we also have, also have to work very closely with our global partners because globally we can have early detection systems, early response systems, early uh, better global coordination on this, and and that can also do a significant uh, that can also play a significant role in mitigating the severity uh, of 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 biological threats, be it natural biological threats, accidental uh, biological threats, uh, purposeful biological threats. Um, you know, we, we need to do better, but something like you discussed, you know, having the framework there, ensuring that we have appropriate PPE, that we have appropriate capacity to care for patients in hospital settings, appropriate capacity to care for patients in outpatient settings, the capacity to, uh, uh, generate our own vaccines locally. I mean, these are all very significant issues, uh, that need to be addressed that you're not just going to snap your finger and have them addressed overnight. Like this really takes a sustained investment over time and it will pay off because it's not, it doesn't just pay off during the pandemic. It also pays off in what we would call peacetime as well. It just makes, yeah, exactly. it makes a lot of sense to have that. Well, I was imagining on the one hand, a conversation around managing risks in relation to prevention, because we can't eliminate all risk. That that's a, that's that's that promise would be would be an impossible one. But certainly, we can reduce risks. And so, the conversation around anti antimicrobial resistance, for example, we can reduce risks there by looking at the misuse or overuse of antibiotics. We can we can look at the human use of antibiotics. We can also look at how antibiotics are used in animals and in industrial oh, yeah. animal agriculture settings and, oh, yeah. and, and manage risks and manage risks on that front and, and reduce risks. We can look to the, if you, you know, and there are a number of reports on this that I was drawing from, but you can look to the interaction between climate change and deforestation and the increasing encroachment on animal habitats by humans. And the more you see an interaction between humans and animals in that space, then the more likely there is to be a zoonotic disease and, and a spillover risk. And so you can you can look at not eliminating risks. We're not eliminating travel, but you can you can look at reducing risks in, in many contexts. So there's a prevention element to this about reducing risk, not not preventing things entirely, but reducing the risk. And then there's that question of preparedness. And you mentioned a number of, of items. I mean, I, I think it's incredibly important, this question of surge capacity. You need to be able to stand up really yep. quickly, whether it's hospital beds, whether it's testing and tracing capacity, which we were overwhelmed by in the course of this pandemic because we didn't have those plans in place, there, uh, vaccine production, as you say, and, and rollout. And then where David Naylor and I were going back and forth, the, the thing that he really put the my, you know, my mind to, and I think the bill could be strengthened on this front, but this idea of making sure that there's a space for simulation and table topping exercises that is not oh, enough yeah. to have a plan on paper but you have to then say every two to three years we're going to run through simulations and then improve the plan accordingly because we weren't prepared in this simulation and then we were and, and this work 
this worked, this didn't work. And, and it can improve in an iterative way from there. So, yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't propose to have all the answors, but when you've got the independent panel internationally, you've got the WHO obviously doing work internationally. You've got the UNIP doing work internationally, IPA is doing work internationally. And then every country, as you say, has their own sort of national facing approach and lessons learned and different reports coming out from Australia to Canada and everywhere in between. It, it, it does make a lot of sense to start to say, let's let's not forget what we just lived through because of the scale right. of human and economic costs. So you covered so much ground there. And I figure, I, I honestly, like every one of those topics, we could walk down that <laughs> rabbit hole for like an hour. Like the one health approach, absolutely. The climate change and emerging infectious diseases, absolutely. The tabletop, absolutely. Like every one of those, I just put a big check mark beside and say, yes, this we, we obviously need to focus on this. We need to focus on this. We need to focus on that. One area that often gets lost in this conversation that I think warrants more attention is the role of public-private partnerships. Okay, That is a giant fail. Okay, We have tremendous capacity, industrial capacity in Canada, and we did not use it wisely initially up front. Okay, let's look at, let's see, let's look at the example of PPE. Okay, initially we had a tremendous shortage of PPE in the country. And people might remember early 2020 when there was this mad scramble to import PPE. And a lot of those planes were landing empty. And then a lot of those planes were landing with the low, you know, low quality, um, supplies that couldn't be used. And, you know, eventually we were able to import some and, and make some locally. But, you know, we have industry here that could literally get the specs and make it and and that would be that and uh you know or you know hand sanitizer or you know pick anything we we have we have tremendous industrial capacity and i think uh public private partnerships would be extremely important thinking the government is going to be able to manage this is foolish and i know i appreciate who i'm speaking with i appreciate <laughs> the, the role of of government is, is important we need sound policies but like come on really they're not they're, they're, they're not going to manage something on this scale by themselves. And I, I think we really need a, a roadmap before uh, the next pandemic to discuss what those public-private partnerships will look like, how industry can contribute to this, um, and, uh, and really harnessing those relationships quickly. Uh, because I think when, when speed is of the essence. And uh, industry has such capacity here in Canada, we could have used them a lot earlier on and, and to our benefit. And we, we a, missed out on a lot of those opportunities. It's a very good point. I, and I was thinking about surge capacity on the testing and tracing, for example, where you've got a, a massive civil service in, at StatsCan, for example. And you could say to folks at StatsCan who are comfortable with surveys and comfortable making calls. And you could say, we are going to make sure that you do your stats can work. But if an, a pandemic ever arises, you are going to be immediately brought in and you're going to be part yeah. of the surge capacity. But you are exactly right to take the same mentality and say, yeah, but you know what? There are all of these industries and, and there are partnerships that were in fits and starts made in an ad hoc way throughout this this pandemic that we just lived through. But you could have standing relationships to say 100 percent. Whether it's sanitizer, whether it's PPE, whether it is, you know, there's a nascent industry that I think will exist in the next 10 to 20 years in a more serious way around cellular agriculture. 
growing uh, animal cells in labs. We're seeing it in Singapore, yep. Israel, and the United States, and we're starting. There's a a growing sort of movement in Canada, but a lot of that is actually pharma capacity, and it's very similar to how vaccines are made. And so there there, there are where there are overlaps between industry and what we will need in the course of pandemic partnerships and, and advanced partnerships makes, makes a world of sense. So that's a, that's good advice along the way. Um, one other uh, one. Yeah. Military, right? So in terms of surge capacity and, and mass vaccination, right? We spent a ton of money and a ton of time um, putting vaccines into mass vaccine clinics uh, we had to build those clinics. We had to staff those clinics. We had to train people to work in those clinics. Uh, then we had uh, primary care vaccinating. We had pharmacies vaccinating. But if you really wanted to do this quickly, you'd involve the military, right? You've got a massive number of people who are identifiable, who are easily trainable, uh, who have the capacity to do uh, tasks like this. You don't need an MD to vaccinate. You just need to train. You could train someone to do this in a very short period of time. And uh, I think we underutilize the military for, for this as well. This is a this is a trainable, identifiable, trustworthy group that is easily uh, we can easily mobilize them in a short period of time. And they are everywhere in the country, like totally underutilized and could Commit, committed be, to public service and saving lives. hundred percent. A hundred percent. Like they have to be folded in into the, into the next one. Like if we that need to vaccinate 38 million people in, you know, three weeks, we could do it. If we have, if we have the right tools and part of the tools include the human capacity and that's an, it, it, you know, you know, relying on Rexall and shoppers drug mart to do it ain't going to work. If they're a helpful component of it, but we can do this a lot faster over a much shorter, you know, we can do this much bigger and faster uh, with with more people involved. Well, I, I appreciate the conversation. I, I, I'm i glad we took some time on the pandemic prevention preparedness side of the equation. Only if only to shamelessly secure your promotion for an endorsement for for a bill I've got in Parliament. But <laughs> but uh, but but more to the point, I, I do appreciate your advocacy all the way through the pandemic, and and I also appreciate you emphasizing and and calling attention to NTDs because I, I do think the cost benefit is so obvious, and so many lives could be positively impacted and, and ultimately saved. And the more that people like yourself with a platform with the opportunity to, to raise awareness for these issues, um, I, I think it's really important that more people understand the opportunity to make a difference. So anyway, pr- appreciate your advocacy, appreciate all the work you did through the pandemic, and appreciate you joining me for the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a great chat. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. I hope I managed to strike a similar tone in my politics that Dr. Bogach has been able to manage in his own public commentary. I, I know I'm still a big L liberal as a member of parliament, but there should be more room for nuance in our debates. If you like what we're doing with the Uncommons podcast, stop what you're doing right now and leave a positive review on your platform of choice. It really is helpful as we grow our audience. You can always suggest topics and guests by email info at beynate.ca or follow on social at beynate. And otherwise, until next time. Oh,